Welcome to the next episode of our podcast on negotiation and this week with a very special guest with the one and only negotiation ninja, Mark Raffin. Mark, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Remy. I appreciate it, man. You're very welcome, Mark. Uh, you have uh, you've had a long history of uh, negotiation excellence in business as a as a procurement person, uh, as uh, something that you probably already got from your mom's and dad's milk, <laughs> right? You come from a family of entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs. Um, then you continued in um, in business. And at some point, you decided to become a ninja. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this moment. How did that happen? Uh, yeah, it was about six years ago. I decided I didn't want to do the corporate thing anymore, and it actually all started in a in a bar, in a pub, <laughs> where I was having way too much to drink and complaining to my friends that there was no great negotiation content out there that I really liked. And they said, "Well, don't moan about it. Like, do something about it, as all good friends should." And I had a few more drinks, and then I thought, "That's a great idea. I am going to do something about it." So I went home. Uh, in a bit of a drunken stupor, went onto Amazon, bought all of the wrong gear for podcasting. The next day started the Negotiations Ninja podcast, which led into a training company. And that's where we are today. All right. That's awesome. So uh, it it sounds like, uh, you know, alcohol has also some positive, uh, positive. Uh, all effect, good yeah? stories start in a bar. <laughs> all good stories start in a bar. Yeah. So then you became a ninja and now you're a best selling author. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce the book yes. which uh, has recently come out, Nine Secrets to Win Deals and Influence Stakeholders, a field guide to B2B negotiation by one and only Mark. Mark, uh, tell us a little bit more about this book. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Nine Secrets to Win Deals and Influence Stakeholders is basically my attempt to educate as many salespeople as humanly possible on how to negotiate correctly. I find that the vast majority of salespeople that I work with have no concept how to actually protect value, build value, retain value, and grow value in a negotiation. They're really good at the other parts of the sales process, right? Like they're really good at prospecting. They're really good at sort of discovery conversations. But as soon as we move into commercial negotiations, for some reason, it all seems to go off the rails pretty quickly. So this is my way to be able to communicate to them from a procurement perspective to say, hey, you guys are screwing this up. Here's how you fix this. Here's how you build and retain and grow more value in your commercial negotiations. And that's very important to be able to talk about that. Look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a sales guy. Right. Like I'm not I'm not going to teach you how to prospect better. I'm not going to teach you how to have discovery conversations better. My expertise lies purely in the negotiation side of things. So bottom of funnel activity, that's where the expertise is. And it's written from the perspective of a procurement person to salespeople. So it's not written from the perspective of a salesperson, but from the other side of the table, because I've seen hundreds and thousands of sales conversations happen, not only just with myself, but with others as well. And there's a few key mistakes that many salespeople make. And this is my hope to be able to help them with this book. Awesome. So Mark, uh, did it also, how did it all start? How did you get this idea to write the book also at a bar? Uh, it, it was probably over a glass of wine or something like that. 
No, it was, you know, it was just my frustration more than anything else. My frustration with, hey, look, there, there's a simpler way to convey this information. And uh, I find that a lot of the books I read in the business world tend to be very theoretical, um, very academic, very high level. And the goal and the intention of the book was to strip away a lot of the theory, strip away a lot of the academics and just say, this is how you do this do these things, right? Take these steps, do this, then do this, then do this. Okay, go do that thing. And that was the whole part. It's meant to be a field guide. It's meant to be instructional. It's meant to be very applicable. It's meant to be um, something that you can use immediately, right? Like the, there's activities to do throughout the book. There's exercises to do throughout the book. It's not meant to be sort of my magnum opus of of negotiation theory there's a lot there should be a lot of familiar ideas in the book for those who read the book but there should also be some things where you're like oh i i didn't see it from that perspective or i didn't think about it from that perspective or that's a different way to look at things and that was my goal wow um amazing um obviously this is a very catchy title here nine secrets to win deals and yes it's meant to be yeah exactly you did a great job with that so would you be ready and willing to show a little or to reveal a little bit of uh, the principles or secrets that um that you share in the book yeah certainly i mean principle number one is right in the title the reason that we chose that title was because there was a lot of thinking that went into that how, like how many do we reveal was the first question we asked ourselves more than nine becomes too much because if people see more than two digits in an instructional guide their mind immediately goes okay that's too much i don't want to read anymore that's crazy but if you go less than like eight then people are like well how much can you really cover in seven things so the number nine was very intentional to cover a certain amount of things to make it sort of catchy for someone or persuasive for someone to be able to actually tie into it. And we know that the word secrets converts. When people see the word secrets, for whatever reason, they're like, oh, I want to know the secret. So persuasion is built into the book straight from the title. And everything in the book is about how do we structure negotiations in the correct way to be able to be as successful as we can be. And so the idea is to improve the probability of success as much as humanly possible. Um, and the way that I describe this book to folks is, this is sort of the tactical guide to strategy. If you've ever th thought about or heard about strategy and negotiation before, you've probably heard of some esoteric concepts like going out onto the balcony and um, BATNA and things like that. And for for a lot of different people, when they hear those kinds of things, they're like, I don't know, I don't know what that means, right? Like I, I have no idea how that actually works. And so our our idea was just to simplify everything and make it as applicable as humanly possible. The first secret is the most important secret in our mind. And the conversation that you and I had prior to this was, wow, that's different than you've seen this sequence before which was to get very clear on what your aspirational goals for the negotiation are. The, mo the vast majority of people that I speak to in the sales world have no idea what they want to achieve from their negotiations. So if I ask them, 
hey, what do you want to get from this? The number one answer that I get from the vast majority of people is, oh, I want to get a good deal. Good deal. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> to which my response is that actually doesn't mean anything, right? Like, congratulations, True. you want a good deal. So does everyone. Exactly. But what does a good deal mean for you? And getting them to think differently about, well, okay, well, what does a good deal mean? What does that, does that mean I make more money? Does that mean I reduce risk? Does that mean I improve communication? Does that mean I improve my relationship with someone? It could mean a number of different things. And the goal is to try and get them to think, okay, well, what are my aspirational goals for this negotiation? I mean, we're all going into a, a season of aspirational goals. On January 1st, the vast majority of the Western world sets the aspirational goal to lose weight. The right? resolutions. Right. So they, they set all of these great, well, I want to make more money. I want to lose weight. I want to, right? Like all of these aspirational goals come out on January 1st but they don't mean anything unless there's an action plan behind them, right? So you can say, well, I want to lose weight in 2024, or I want to make more money in 2024. But what does that actually mean? How are you going to do that? So the second part of that is to say, okay, take those aspirational goals now, and let's break them down. What are we going to actually negotiate into the deal in order to help you achieve that aspirational goal. So if the aspirational goal is to make more money, are you going to sell more seats? Are you going to cross-sell other services? Are you going to upsell to a premium product? Are you going to improve working capital by improving payment terms? Are you going to reduce the amount of labor that you put into the contract so that you maximize your profitability? There could be a number of different ways that you make more money out of the negotiation but we don't think of those levers often we just go oh i want to make more money and then we just kind of wing it in our negotiations to go i'll figure it out as i go i guess it's a massive mistake <laughs> thank you so much mark for sharing this and i hope your uh, your book will inspire many b2b negotiators <clears throat> to look into uh, the way they um, they handle their negotiations uh, uh, Mark is also a super successful podcaster with his Negotiation Ninja. Um, I think you are one of the most popular podcasts, if not the most popular podcast in the world. Yeah? And, Me and Kwame Christian battling it out for the top spot. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. And uh, um, you meet a lot of people from uh, from sales, from procurement. And uh, I was uh, I was wondering whether you would... Uh, whether you would dare to synthesize a little bit about the changes that we are currently undergoing in the field of uh, sales slash uh, procurement negotiations. Uh, is there anything that in particular that you observe, which you would, uh, uh, which you would classify as, you know, evolutionary or revolution or seismic changes uh, um, uh, in that out there in the field? Yeah. I mean, I, I would be foolish if I didn't mention the prominence and growth of AI in negotiations. I think that uh, if you are not paying attention to what AI is doing in the negotiation world, you're really missing out on massive opportunities to take advantage of that area. And you're also missing out on what you should be defending against when it comes to those specific areas. It's uh, it, it blows me away to see how rapidly that space is changing and how it's growing and what are all the things that are going on within that world 
Um, I mean, one such example is is just utilizing, Kelt Jensen actually writes about this. Uh, for all the listeners, pick up Kelt's new book, Negotiation Essentials, where he talks about a study that he did around uh, utilizing AI, specifically ChatGPT in negotiations. And anyone who utilized ChatGPT within their negotiations who also already had an education in negotiations did better in their negotiations. But that last part is really important, right? If you already had an education in negotiation, you already were pretty well versed in negotiation theory, tactics, strategy, then you did better. If you did not, you did not do better. And that's really important because some of the information, a lot of the information that ChatGPT feeds you sometimes on certain topics is is pretty nonsense, right? Like it's surface level information that may not necessarily elicit the right responses that you're looking for or the right information, which is why that data is so interesting to me because Kelp basically says, look, if you know what you're doing already, this is going to make you better. But yes. if you don't know what you're doing, it's actually not going to make you better at all. So That's we're correct. seeing that in, um, in a lot of different circumstances. And we're also seeing like... AI bots negotiating on behalf, behalf of people and a, a bunch of really interesting pricing AI technologies that are coming out and legal AI technologies that are coming out. It's very, very interesting space. Yes. Um, um, I don't know if you guys, uh, uh, you guys know that, but uh, we run negotiation competitions for students and for professionals. And in our this year's edition, um, all participants, all professionals yes, uh, that took part in our competition and negotiated one of the rounds against guess guess what or whom <laughs> against an AI autonomous AI negotiation bot from Uncapped, uh, which is an Australian uh, startup company that uh, that is making uh, is making huge has made a huge progress on this and uh, and uh, this was absolutely amazing. This was absolutely amazing for many participants to see. Uh, well, first of all, uh, this whole thing can easily pass the um, um ah i forgot uh the, the what's the name of that uh individual what's the name of the test uh turing oh, turing test yes thank you so much mark yes uh, easily can pass the turing test uh, but that uh, we've already experienced many years uh many years uh many years ago but actually the um autonomous al algorithms are getting scarily good as uh, in negotiation they are able to they are able to uh, um, to react uh, really, really quickly to uh, to proposals, counter proposals. They are obviously unbiased in their calculations. Yes, uh, they uh, have very little preference for certain ways uh, we behave. Yes, and therefore, <clears throat> and uh, and therefore, they can perfectly separate relationship from substance. Yes, which many people cannot. Many people cannot, uh, and. Um, what we also notice is that for individuals negotiating with machines when they know that they are machines can be frustrating mm. can be really frustrating because you know one of the um, uh, one of the variables uh, one of the variables that is used uh, to program those machines is the intensity of negotiating so how fast do i concede yes uh, right because uh, ultimately Yes, there is this movement um, in the northeastern direction, which means you know creating value based on differences in preferences. But there is also movement towards uh, our end of the efficiency frontier, which means by 
by either making concessions or escalating demands. Yes, and uh, and uh, these machines have, do have a variable. Typically, uh, these algorithms do have a variable which can be set. Yeah. So how intensive uh, uh, shall this program? How, shall, shall, how, shall how intensive shall this um, negotiation be? And very often, uh, very often, people find it frustrating when it's too intensive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they are not used to machines telling them what to do and what not to. Do you think, <laughs> but, do you think yeah. these companies that are creating these things, I mean, obviously they're going to deploy it with large enterprise where large enterprise is going to have these machines negotiate on their behalf. Do you think there's an ethical responsibility for those companies to disclose to the people that the bots are negotiating with that this is in fact a bot? Um, I do believe that uh, transparency with this, within this process would increase, um, uh, would strengthen the relationship uh, between the vendors and, uh, and, and their clients. Yes. So I'm, um, I'm all for disclosing it. I'm all for disclosing it. Uh, uh, but I know also that there, um, there are different opinions. Uh, there are different opinions on this topic. Well, uh, especially, you know, that we are approaching, we are very quickly approaching the, the moment where, um, uh, where, um, Artificial intelligence uh, reaches the level of general um, or general of general intelligence, not only specific for you know design for a specific problem in a specific industry, which means negotiating you know the price of eggs for Walmart or I don't know yeah. the price of a container uh, for Maersk or whatever else, right? So, uh, but also become. Um, generically smart enough to handle different unstructured problems. So, what, so we are what pro would you do? I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. What would you do in that kind of a situation? If you were faced with, and you were in a negotiation, a commercial negotiation, and you were faced with knowing that you're negotiating with a bot, would you continue that negotiation or would you immediately default to saying, I have no interest in this. I want to negotiate with a human being. <laughs> I just noticed that as well, and obviously our audience too, uh, right? It's very, it's possible to take a to take someone from his natural habitat, but uh, you know this natural habitat will get him sooner than later. <laughs> so to those of us, uh, those of you guys who will only listen to um, uh, listen to us later on, uh, one of uh, Sergio, one of our listeners and viewers, mentioned fantastic the interviewee interviewing the interviewer. <laughs> But uh, this is, uh, I absolutely love it, Mark. Uh, you're a great podcaster. I'm uh, one of your, uh, one of your faithful listeners. Uh, I was, uh, I was almost, I was almost getting ready to say, hey, how does it feel to be in a different role? But apparently it must, it must have made you uncomfortable. Because, <laughs> because you I'm not used to being the one who answers the questions. I'm used <laughs> to being the one who asks the questions. But seriously, I do want to know, because if I was, if I was faced with that, if I knew that I was negotiating against a bot, logically, I know, at least based on the information that I've already seen, I know that the bot understands all of human bias. I, I know that the bot does not have any human bias. I also know that the bot doesn't get deal fatigue, right? And so I'm probably going to lose. So... I want to be in that. I don't want to be in that kind of. I'm immediately going to say, I have no interest in this. I want to talk to a human being. What What would you do in that situation? Um, I would uh, kindly ask about the objective function uh, with which th these bots have been programmed. Yes, because ultimately, <clears throat> the behavior of those bots uh, uh, boils down to uh, how they were structured or how they were built to behave. 
Yes. Right. Uh, and uh, and uh, um, I think there are different schools of thoughts uh, of, of thought out there. And so some of those bots are built to extract value. Yes. Uh, so where their dominating uh, dominating objective is make sure you get as much as it's possible as yes, uh, right. given the following market information, given the following, you know, past data, past transactional data uh, with uh, with other uh, with other vendors, yes, with other right. partners, uh, and uh, get me the best deal in numbers. I don't care about anything else. So that's it's it's possible. It's possible, and that will indeed lead to a high, very high um, dissatisfaction with the process on the vendor side. And Do you think they would reveal that to you? I don't think that the company would like. And and also, if I'm a company that's implementing that tech, would I understand how the algorithm is actually? Like the person that's probably managing it on the other side of the table doesn't doesn't understand how the algorithm was built in the first place. It just knows that this is a negotiation bot that we use, right? So right. I, I wonder if they would even know that. Like if I'm going to try and maximize value from my organization as much as humanly possible. This is why I think it's so important for people not to default to one negotiation strategy or one negotiation aspect because if you're if you if you go in assuming that the counterparty is going to search for a collaborative negotiation where we come together and we're transparent with each other and we're all going to hold hands and sing kumbaya what if you're faced with another negotiator who doesn't feel that way who's looking to maximize utility and who's looking to maximize value for their organization and really doesn't care, right? Like doesn't give a shit about you or what you're trying to maximize or how you're trying to do things. This is this like my biggest pet peeve about, I'm gonna go on a bit of a rant here. My biggest pet peeve about people who read negotiation books they, is that they only read one. They'll read one negotiation book and then assume that they know about negotiation. It's like, it's like saying, well, I'm, I'm only going to read one marketing book or I'm only going to read one management book or I'm only going to read one accounting. Like it's it's insane. It's insane to think that, you know, about a subject if you only read one thing. So like for the listeners, whoever's if you're listening to my rant, please, for the love of God, pick up several negotiation books, not just mine. Pick up Kelts and and pick up um, Chris Voss and and pick up Jim Camp and pick up Alan Sang and, and pick up all of these different books where you can read about negotiation from different perspectives because it's going to give you a, a much more holistic idea of the way that different people approach it. Yes, uh, thank you, Mark, for this rant. Apparently, apparently, there is there are some things that you feel emotional about, and it's yeah, very. Yeah, it's good to experience it uh, here on our uh, in this episode. So let me answer the question which uh, preceded the rant. <laughs> so, do I believe whether they would reveal it? Well, that would be the ultimate test of uh, credibility and trustworthiness of our, of our partners. Yes, uh, <clears throat> there is only one instance in which they would want they would uh, they would want to conceal it, and that the in that instance is indeed uh, uh, pure positional competitive bargaining. As yes, uh, in all other cases, we can both do better if we know that we are going to cooperate. 
Yes. And failure to answer this question yes, means to me immediately, hey, uh, this process is set up to exert value, yes, to extract the most value for the company that has set it up. Yeah, or I'll just lie to you. Right? Or you would lie to me and then, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, uh, we're looking for a win-win, Remy. Yeah, well, like always. We want right? you to win too. Oh, of course, I would. But in general, in general, Mark, uh, this is a uh, this is a critical question. Yes, this is a critical question, which ultimately, ultimately reflects uh, the ethics of business making. And right. so, uh, um, what does it mean that when we uh, when we revert to technological solutions to solve certain uh, business problems? Right. Uh, well, we still machines do not have their own ethics. Right. Uh, the ethics of machines is programmed by human beings, yes? uh, which means <clears throat> also automatically, it means that uh, if uh, if someone decides to use, you know, Pactum or Uncapped or whatever companies offer, uh, whatever company offering similar algorithms, uh, they will have to make those choices as yes? they will have to tell the, the programming company what are their objectives. And in while defining the objectives, well, they will reflect their own personal ethics and morale. Yes, and uh, I think it. Uh, uh, we had a very long debate in our competition, or between um, my dearest, longest friend uh, Peter Casting and myself, uh, about what is it, what is fair. Uh, uh, also in business, uh, is it fair to get as much as we can, or is it fair to get as much as we deserve? Yeah. We're not going to have it uh, right now because Mark is already getting ready to I'm ask ready, the man. next question. Yes, I, I, see I am it. absolutely yes. ready. His, his tongue is itching, itching him, <laughs> him right now as we speak. I will then switch over, right, and uh, and ask my next question. You mentioned uh, adaptability, yes, yeah. uh, which means uh, you know there is just as there is not no not one universal book to unite them all. There is no one universal strategy uh, that guarantees success in every setting. As yes? uh, right. so, and we also we also know from very recent research that uh, strategic adaptability uh, is important as it correlates with the quality of the outcomes. Yeah? Uh, what's your take from the field, Mark? Um, have you do you see people in out in the field on the sales or procurement side uh, who are able to react to spontaneous un, uh, spontaneously revealed unknowns uh, right or to uh, surprises that they that they might experience based on wrongly made assumptions previously with respect to you know negotiating style credibility trustworthiness or whatever may you what is your take on strategic adaptability from the field uh, there definitely is some strategic adaptability. I, I would say that it's very industry specific, oftentimes I've found, and it's often uh, a result of your ability to adapt as a result of your history of failure, as strange as that sounds. So the, the more that you have failed, quote unquote, or the more that things have popped up in the past that you didn't expect or that went wrong or that took a turn that you didn't expect it to take, the more able you are to be adaptable to those kinds of situations. Um, 
Michael Wheeler is a great professor out of Harvard uh, who writes about negotiation, great negotiation professor. He talks about adaptability in negotiations a lot. Uh, and he's got one book. I can't remember that. I think it's called The Art of Negotiation. The Jazz. The Jazz. Yeah, exactly. He talks about negotiation like jazz, right? Like a great musician, a great jazz musician is able to adapt on the fly in certain situations based on how the rest of the ensemble is playing, based on the new drum set that the drummer goes into, based on the crowd and what they're reacting to, and all of those kinds of situations, that person is is adaptable. They're moving and shaping in the negotiation based on the music, so to speak, that's being played around them in that circumstance. But he, he makes a really important caveat to that. He said, good jazz musicians are also just great musicians. They've learned how to read music really well. They've reached a level in their music playing ability that means that they are top level at what they do. You can't just pick up an instrument and start playing jazz and make it sound good. You have to go through all of the lessons and learn the theory and learn all of that stuff in order to play jazz. And so I think the same thing is true for negotiation. It, to echo his points, the, the more educated you are, the more that you've done and the more you've seen where things have gone wrong, the easier it is for you to adapt in those kinds of situations where I see a lot of negotiations sort of stick to a specific framework is a result of lack of experience and education, certainly is one of them. Industry specifics, like I find in manufacturing and auto and those kinds of industries, it tends to be very linear in their approach. And I also find that those people that are not able to adapt are just stuck in their ways. They're not really they're not really focused on creating value so much as they are focused on getting a deal done. And that's a very small distinction, but it is very, very important. Because you may be thinking to yourself, well, what's the difference between getting a deal done and creating value? It's massive, right? It is. One, one could lead to expediting the deal and making the deal get done faster and the other one could lead to actually slowing down the deal to go okay well what else can we do here what additional value can we how creative can we get with this thing to make sure that we're maximizing value for the organization um, and i think it's it, it depends on the industry that you're going into there's some adaptability but it's a often a result of curiosity and experience and education Yes, um, thank you, Mark, for your take on it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we were uh, with jazz, back to pubs. Uh, one of the key skills at bars and pubs is influencing, right? Yes. <laughs> and uh, you guys will find influencing here in the second part of this book's title. Mark, tell us a few secrets about how to influence stakeholders. Well, I think first, like a lot of people immediately default to a tactic for persuasion or influence so you'll hear about scarcity or authority or likability or social proof or what like list any of the sort of persuasion influence ideas the the number one thing that you have to think about when you're trying to persuade someone or influence someone for that matter is who am i trying to influence that's 
it seems so simple, but so many people miss this. So I could go into a negotiation or any kind of conversation where I'm trying to persuade someone and I haven't thought about you. If I haven't thought about you in that kind of a situation, if I'm negotiating or trying to persuade you and I'm thinking about things from my perspective, I'm going to use influential words that influence me, not that influence you. And that's a that's a key mistake. So it, first thing is, who am I trying to influence? What is who is my audience? What what am I then? What am I trying to influence them about? What am I actually trying to get them to change their mind on? Which means that I actually have to understand what you believe in first. Right. So I can't influence you in a direction unless I understand what you believe in. And once I can understand what you believe in, then I can determine how I'm going to influence you. Once I can determine what you believe in and how I'm going to influence you, then I can influence and persuade you. So many people get straight to the tactic or the idea or like a fear of missing out argument or a framing just like it, to steal from Kahneman, like if I'm going to frame something differently. But I don't know if you think that way. So in, mm -hmm. in order for that thing to work, I first have to understand who am I influencing? What do they currently care about? What am I trying to influence them of? And then I can determine how am I going to influence them? Well, thank you so much for this perspective, <clears throat> Mark. Uh, I was wondering, um, as um, as you were explaining, um, uh, let's say the other side of influencing, right? Uh, or let's say the groundwork of influencing. Maybe it's not the other side; it's the foundation, right? Uh, start with who. Um, I was thinking about a question which I often get from, uh, especially from my students, not so much executives, but uh, but students. Uh, um, ethics, <laughs> ethics of influencing and ethics of negotiation. Uh, we spoke a little bit about this uh, right before we went on air. Uh, Mark, a question to you, spontaneous question to you. Do you believe we should get as much as we can or do you believe we should get as much as we deserve? What's your Who personal take Who determines what on? you deserve? I'm sorry? Who determines what you deserve? Oh, well, um, this is uh, this is a very uh, answering question with a question, huh? <laughs> well, that's an important question to clarify before I answer. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Let me let me try if I can uh, if I can uh, shed some light into it. Let's say uh, there are uh, things like industry standards. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, average gross profit uh, among sure. the industry, or you know, average profitability. Such statistics are available and they can be really easily accessed nowadays, right? We know, yeah. you know, how much, what is the return of uh, return of equity in banking? As uh, uh, we can really easily uh, look up how much money banks are making on, on their equity. As uh, we can really easily look up what is the average, uh, the average uh, gross, uh, <clears throat> gross profit or gross margin uh, in retail industry. Or in pharmaceutical industry, yes. So, right. so I think it's not a, it's not a unique value, right? Averages are not unique. Uh, it's a collection of you know higher and lower values. Typically, they don't line up on the same line. Yes, uh, some are higher, some are lower. But in general, um, um, to answer your question, deserve means something which is based on standards that could con could be considered by outsiders to be fair. Interesting. Okay, if we're gonna get into this conversation. Then that's that's great. Okay, 
So I'm going to continue to clarify this conversation with questions for you. So sure. the question initially was, should we try to, and let me just make sure I understand this correctly. Should we try to always get more out of the negotiation and negotiate for more, or should we negotiate for what we deserve? Is that correct? Yes, as much as you can. So is as it really max versus yes. what you deserve? Okay, so yes. my clarifying questions would be, who gets to determine what we deserve? And if the answer to that question is, well, there's industry standards to be able to determine what gross margin is or profitability or what an index is showing, my answer is, yeah, but I deserve more than that. So are you going to tell me that I don't deserve more than that? And then if you tell me that I don't deserve more than that, what right do you have to tell me that I don't deserve more? If we're using an industry benchmark as that, and I say, no, no, like we are going to earn more than that, then I'm going to, at some point in time, we're going to have the conversation about, okay, well, then you must be delivering more value than the average in the industry, correct? Correct. So if I can show you more value than what the average in the industry, because it is an average, if I can show you more value than what the average in the industry is, then I should get paid more, correct? Correct. So then it's about what I get out of the negotiation. So it's not about what I deserve. Deserve is such a subjective term. It's same as the term fair. There is no such thing as fair. Fair is fictitious. It's a fabrication. It's fairy dust. Because what you believe is fair is very different than what I believe is fair. So if you say to me, well, Mark, it's fair for us to split the difference between these two things. I'm going to say bullshit, right? Like there's there's no reason why that should be fair to me. No, I deserve more out of this negotiation. I want more out of this negotiation. So I, I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to maximize value for as much as what you can. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's uh, that's uh, that's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> are there are there limits to maximizing value individually? Help me to understand the context of that question. Well, um, maximizing th theoretically, when we look at uh, the procedure of maximization, it has no limits. Yes? Okay. So basically, maximizing means uh, I should get it all, and you and my partner nothing. Okay, but then there's, of course, there's a limit to maximizing value because if I maximize it too much, you're going to be out of business, right? Correct. So then there is no, then there is a limit to maximizing value. And where does this limit lie? Who determines this limit? Is it me? Excellent who says, question. <laughs> Someone's got to say no at some point in time, right? right. So if I'm going to, if I keep asking for something and you keep saying yes, that's not on me, that's on you. Correct. You have to make a decision to say no at some point in time. Right. It's not my fault that you're shitty at negotiation. <laughs> right. So I'm going to try and I'm going to try and keep asking. And if I keep asking and you keep saying yes, I'm going to keep taking out of that negotiation. But you've got to now ask for something in return. This is why negotiation education is so important, because you've got to know when to say no. Like, no, we no. I cannot do that. Here's what I can do, right? Like being able to do that is so important because otherwise you're going to be stuck in a situation where you're going to give and give and give, and we're going to get a contract formation point and you're going to go, I can't do this. And then I'm going to say, <laughs> exactly. what do you mean you can't do this? You just agreed. Right. You just, you just, all the whole time you've been saying yes. 
So yeah, I'm a I'm a big believer in maximizing value as much as humanly possible. But look, at the end of the day, if I'm if I'm in a negotiation where I realize I'm actually just plowing this person down in a negotiation, but they come from a company with deep pockets, I don't care. They can afford it. They, they can, can afford, afford to be it. Plowed. They can afford it. But if they come from a small business, then I'm going to be like, look, this may not be a good idea for you, right? Right. So I guess it depends on how you view the negotiation. If I'm up against Walmart or Amazon or so, I, I care. I give zero fucks whether or not they they are being owned in the negotiation. Got Starbucks, it. Starbucks, come on, they've got lots of money. They have money, right? They have money. They can pay. Yeah. Absolutely. What we noticed in, uh, in our competitions uh, <clears throat> um, uh, this year, last year, something that we were, uh, Peter and I, a friend, my friend uh, Peter Kesting and I are trying to investigate as we speak, as, uh, or planning to in investigate uh, in the near future, uh, is uh, uh, when we, we noticed the reactions of individuals uh, who experienced their negotiator, negotiation partners wanting to maximize for themselves. And it's very interesting to observe because typically uh, experiencing that sort of attitude leads to no to value creation and kills trust before it can be built. Yeah. How do you know, though? Um, I, would, I would argue that a skilled negotiator who is maximizing value will be able to pull it off in a way that the person who's experiencing that would never even know. I completely never agree. Even know. You would leave that negotiation going, phenomenal. I feel great about this. This deal is great. I completely agree, In fact, Mark. Mark was so nice. He even congratulated me, and he told me that I did a great job. Wow, amazing. Mark, you're absolutely right. Yes, we do have also that those negotiators. But let me ask the first question first. Yes, how do we know? Uh, we uh, we ask at the, end of, uh, at the end of each negotiation round, we ask the parties to evaluate each other. Yes, uh, using a standard procedure, um, the SVIs, uh, so basically which measures strengths of the relationship. Yes, uh, so uh, we can quantify this indeed. Yes, we can quantify it. But I completely agree. Uh, in about, um, we get about 50 teams uh, in, um, in, uh, in the student competition. So from about 50 teams, about one or two can do exactly what you've just described. Yeah? I call it the panda bear strategy, and it's uh, it's really cool that it uh, that it came from you. Or it, it popped up in uh, in our conversation. I call it the panda bear strategy is the ability to combine both at the same time, right. building uh, um, or um, let's say uh, building up the satisfaction while uh, eating the whole cake. Yes, or claiming the major why panda part. bear? Why did you choose that analogy? <laughs> Why panda bear? Well, because of the association that we have when we see panda bears. Oh. And this is the effect which these people, uh, we've looked at, uh, we've watched the videos of teams who ultimately end up great with great relational outcomes and a lot of value claimed for themselves. And what we notice is that they, uh, they all share a certain, certain characteristics uh, uh, or a certain set of characteristics. Yes? They come across as pandas. They are so funny. They are so outspoken. Very charismatic, very welcoming. Exactly. Super happy. kind, smiling, yeah. right? Hey, uh, let's, how do you say that? Let's hold hand and sing Kumbaya, right? Yeah, so, that's exactly right. This sort of uh, this sort of mentality, while 
what happens in the in the in, in the background is a hardcore value optimization. So how much do I need to push in a kind, possibly kindest way? Um, and where do I need to push? How do I? What do I need to do to get more? Right? Uh, there are not many people who can do it. Yes, but there are such people. Yes, so you're absolutely correct. Uh, in our competitions, that would be what two out of fifty. That's four percent. Yes, and I think it's even these. All of those fifty teams are very extremely well prepared. They undergo systematic preparation as yes, for months, as yes, which stretches for months. And yet again, only very few can do it. And so it's a huge talent gift. Yeah? Um, but we're slightly deviating from your book. Yes. Yeah, we're Will having a someone... great conversation. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. Absolutely, Mark. Will someone find out how to how to negotiate like a panda <laughs> after reading your book? I would say that we'll understand how to prepare that way. That's that's the main thing. So uh, everything in the book is meant to get you up to the to day one of negotiation. So we, we don't talk about gambits like good cop, bad cop or red herrings or decoys or anything like that. We don't talk about um, tactical things like intonating your voice differently or body language or anything like that. We talk specifically about preparation and planning because um, that's the thing that we, we think is most missing from the vast majority of sales conversations. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that's the... That's the least sexy part of negotiation, right? The, the sexy part of negotiation is the, the script and how we uh, handle objections and how we intonate our voice differently and how we have different body language cues. And, you know, if I look up and to the left, what does that mean? And those kinds of that's the sexy part of negotiation. Uh, we don't deal in any of that kind of stuff. We only deal in preparation and planning and strategy within the book uh, because that's where it's most missing. That's that's the biggest area where most people are are really lacking. Mm -hmm. uh, fundamentals, yes. Uh, so, Mark, <clears throat> if you were to give one advice, not nine, yes, nine, no, not nine secrets, you have to restrict it to only one advice, yes, uh, uh, to aspiring B2B sales uh, people, as, uh, what would it be? Learn how to concede properly. Uh, I think the vast majority of salespeople, in fact, we know the vast majority of salespeople that we work with have no idea how to protect value in their negotiations. No idea. They're very good at building value, but they're not very good at protecting value. And so when they get to the commercial negotiation, if they're faced with a, a good procurement person, the procurement person is going to say, we need a 35% discount off of this thing. And they just keep grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding until the salesperson keeps giving, right? Doesn't know how to ask for anything in return, doesn't know how to taper concessions, doesn't know how to give a portion of whatever it is that they're trying to give, and doesn't know how to like manage the perception of scarcity in their negotiations. And inevitably what ends up happening is that the salesperson just ends up feeding the procurement person with everything that the procurement person wants because the procurement person is just not going to give up unless they hear no. That's their job. That's their job. That is what they are paid to do. So when that happens, it's just, 
it's really sad. It's really sad to see because you've built up so much value at, over the course of the sale, only for it to all be eaten away by in, the procurement in a, lions in a negotiation, right? And so, and now you're stuck, right? So learn how to concede. And if you can learn how to concede properly and ask for something, and by the way, that sounds like a, a strange thing to say, because I'm asking you to learn how to give something away and how to ask for something in return. Most of us go into a negotiation not expecting to give much away. And the downside to that kind of thinking is that you actually end up giving away a lot. Giving more away the, yeah, yeah. So exactly. And above of all, the more important things, the things that are important, more important to you than they are to, uh, to them. Yeah. Um, so that's secret number three. That's chapter number three. Once you can haven't read out it that, um, you know, pick up the book. Secret number three. You'll Secret be able to figure three. out how to do that. All right. So typically, typically, social <clears throat> techniques, uh, the, 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 the techniques of influencing would put the most important thing at the end, so that people read about the, the eight uh, previous secrets. Uh, you put it almost directly in the middle. Mark, my last question, always the same for all my guests: Who are the great negotiators uh, for you? Anyone historically, contemporary that has inspired yeah. you that you admire yeah, yeah hang on you, uh, uh, let me just look in my bookcase here to see if i i mean there's so so many um my favorite here it is my favorite of all time is herb cohen's you can negotiate anything i'm a massive herb cohen fan um have been for forever I think he's brilliant. I think the things that he's able to understand about human behavior, no one else is able to do just because of how he's dedicated that. But I've got an entire list of books um, that I recommend at the end of my book where I say, okay, don't stop here because I really believe in that. Don't stop here. Go and read all of the books that you can on negotiations. And then I give people a list of books under recommended reading where I talk about you know, getting to yes, of which I disagree with many things in that book, but it's still a brilliant book. No one can discount that. Start with No, The Art and Science of Negotiation by Howard Rafa, Influenced by Cialdini, The Art of Seduction by Robert Greene. Like there's 20 books basically in there where I talk about all the different things that I found to be really beneficial that I think are really brilliant book. Kelt Jensen's in there, for example. Like these are great guys. And and by the way, disagree with many of the things that they say. But that's why it's so important because we get stuck in confirmation bias, right? Like we go and find information to support a pre-existing idea that we already had. Don't do that with your education. That's dumb. Go and find differing ideas that help you to think differently. Mark, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. What a great conversation we've had, right? Uh, it was, I'm sure it was super hard for you not to uh, to refrain from yourself from asking questions, which you could contain yourself only to uh, to the degree it was uh, it was absolutely necessary. Thank you so much for your patience to you guys, to our listeners and viewers. Uh, here, Nine Secrets to Win Deals and Influence Stakeholders, a field guide to B2B negotiations is out now i will add a link to it uh, in the comments uh, um, guys grab the book uh, order your book uh, it's uh, it's definitely worth it mark thank you so much for being with us uh, and until next time on the podcast on negotiation thank you thank you for having me thank you <laughs>